Martin Luther King is going through an agonizing reappraisal. He doesn't belong to the uh, decadent uh, aristocratic uh, colonials of the civil rights movement. But you suggest that he might be going through an agonizing reappraisal that will wind him up where? Third phase of black revolution. A black revolution. That's how folks were talking in 1967, in King's last year. That was a U.S. congressman, y'all. That wasn't some dude off the street. That was Adam Clayton Powell. He was one of the first black members of Congress elected since Reconstruction. He represented Harlem. And he's on TV. This is like a CBS News special. This is going out to millions and millions of living rooms. I mean, they only had like three or four channels back then. I mean, this was a big deal. And here you have this congressman saying that Martin Luther King was becoming the leader of a black revolution. That's how folks were talking. So listen, say what you want about this presidential election that we're going through right now. We don't have shit on 1967 and 68. Listen, in the summer of 1967, these black uprisings were occurring in literally dozens of cities, almost 40 cities, with the rebellions in, in Newark and in Detroit claiming almost 70 lives in open armed combat. I'm talking U.S. soldiers led by top generals fighting armed rebels, Americans in the streets. 70 people killed in the span of like three weeks in just two American cities. And what King promises for 1968 has the Pentagon shook. So they're sending out these Green Beret teams all over the country to assess cities, American cities, as potential battlefields. Listen, I mean, these Green Beret teams are, are out looking for landing zones and they're mapping out the streets and scouting sniper sites in American cities. Because they're scared that this thing, maybe it's a revolution, is going to blow up. And they have to be ready for, for combat. Now, meanwhile, Hoover, by the end of 1967, is figuring out how to go around the president, who's been keeping him on a shorter leash. So, by the first days of 1968, Hoover launches an expansion of COINTELPRO, but like on the low. And this new force in the FBI is dedicated only to King's poverty campaign. This occupation of Washington coming in April and May of 1968 that will bring thousands, maybe millions, to Washington to demand an end to capitalism as we know it. And just a few weeks before Hoover launches this new offensive, top officials meet at the Pentagon to discuss just that. What to do about King. What to do about that, that worst case scenario. They openly discussed the possibility of bringing troops back from Vietnam in order to have a, a domestic military force capable of, of putting down a, a wider and wider rebellion, which at some point you have to call a revolution. They don't have enough combat troops. That meeting ends up breaking up in frustration. They don't know what to do. One of the men who was there told Tompkins at the, at the commercial appeal, he says, quote, looking back, I remember nobody had any answers. We had all these West Point geniuses who could lead divisions, but when it came to stopping Dr. King, they didn't have a clue. 
You suggest that he might be going through an agonizing reappraisal that will wind him up where? Third phase of back revolution. The murder of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shot that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Welcome back to the crux. So to understand King's last year, we do really have to understand that speech he gives on April 4th, 1967, where he comes out against the Vietnam War and against sort of imperialism generally. But he also links that with his anti-racist struggle and with economic inequality here at home. It's this new intersectional critique. And it has everybody feeling a type of way. Everybody in the establishment, white and black. I mean, you already know that all the, the fancy white folks at the magazines and the newspapers are all in their feelings about it. And they come savagely for King. But what's different is that now we have black clergy and other civil rights leaders also distancing themselves from King. So much so that the NAACP votes for and passes a resolution attacking King for the speech he gives on April 4th. And the reason this is so important, it's not just the content of the speech. This is why I'm talking about the backlash, the both white and black backlash, is that King, in his last year, doesn't care. Dr. King, in 1967, is speaking to 1967. What is happening on the ground, in the streets? 1967 is a crazy as shit year which we'll get into throughout this episode. And that's what King is trying to engage with. He doesn't care what this, what folks in the white establishment or the black establishment have to say. He really doesn't. He's done with them. Here he is a few weeks after that April 4th speech where he's addressing his, the new haters he's collected and he's, and he's reiterating. He's like, nah, I'm not, I'm not in it for your like fancy dinners and shit. We're getting busy in 1967. I weighed the criticisms that I would get. I thought about even the fact that some Negroes wouldn't understand and some respectable Negro leaders who are more concerned about being invited to the White House than invited to the cause of justice would be against me. And then came the summer. And that summer brought the worst urban violence we'd seen yet. The Newark uprising, which raged for a week, left 26 dead and hundreds injured. And it's followed like almost immediately by the Detroit rebellion. The Detroit uprising was the most violent black uprising essentially in the nation's history, if you don't count Nat Turner. And it follows right on the heels of Newark. It claims 43 lives. And at times it, it really was it was armed guerrilla war. I mean, if you don't believe me, here's here's a New York Times article from Wednesday, July 26th, right at the height 
of this battle. And the article begins, quote, Tank crews blasted away at entrenched snipers with 50 caliber guns early today, unquote. That sounds like Fallujah, or that, that sounds like Aleppo. That doesn't sound like America. Americans fighting Americans in an American city. This was a guerrilla war. This was government tanks squaring off against snipers and improvised firebombs. Don't let anyone tell you that this was a riot. Riots are what happened after, you know, hockey teams win or, or whatever. That That's a riot. No, this was an uprising put down by government forces. And rebellions of some size or another happened in like dozens of cities that summer. That's Cyrus Vance, Deputy Secretary of Defense, one of the nation's top military officials. That's Mitt's daddy. In other words, this has become a military campaign. The cops are tapped out. State police tapped out. National Guard tapped out. So now the military, the Pentagon, has come in to take over the operation. This is now a combat theater. And this is significant on its face, of course. But it's also significant in what it ends up revealing to the military about Dr. King, who remains, you know, a, a preacher, a Christian preacher, preaching nonviolent resistance. King has not become a, a proponent of, of armed rebellion. But the rebels that the army detains after the Detroit uprising are found to look to Dr. King far and away more than any other black leader, including Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, H. Rat Brown. They look to Dr. King. See, they know this because Army Intelligence conducts this secret survey. They round up close to 500 black males who were detained or arrested for firing at U.S. troops. These are, these are legit-ass rebels. And you have these military guys dressed as civilians, and they're conducting this survey. And they ask the guys a bunch of questions, but the one that gives them the most pause is when they ask, who is your favorite Negro leader? In, in their parlance. And King comes out far and away ahead with, with Carmichael and, and Malcolm X coming in a distant second and fourth. And so the army maybe knows what a lot of people don't at that point, which is that King is a leader to these new rebels. But then he's also a leader to the nonviolent protesters. He's seen in a good light by the Panthers and by SNCC and those folks. 
but also by white student protesters. He hasn't severed all ties with the black establishment. He can still go on any news show anytime he wants, pretty much. He, he enjoys a singular place in American culture and politics, and he's just getting warmed up. So at the end of that, that bloody summer of 1967, this new multiracial group promising a new politics holds a national convention in Washington. It's called the National Conference for a New Politics. The Chicago Tribune describes it as, quote, a meeting of 2,000 revolutionaries dedicated to the overthrow of the existing power structure in the country. And King is the keynote speaker. And there's talk at the convention of running Dr. King for president. President Johnson, a Democrat, was so vulnerable at that point due to the Vietnam War and other stuff that members of his own party were lining up to run against him in the primaries, or they were soon to be. He was looking really, really vulnerable at that point. And so at this huge convention of progressives and, and radicals, they're saying, well, let's let's run King. So I said King was the keynote speaker. So let's, let's listen to a, a bit of King's keynote address, both as a major speech to this, this huge multiracial radical political coalition, but also as something like a potential stump speech. We've all heard our fair share of, of stump speeches and and all that carefully crafted, you know, political rhetoric over the past year or so. So, in your mind, compare what you've heard from everybody so far in this election season, Bernie Sanders included, and imagine this guy, and this is his stump speech. Unemployment rages at a major depression level in the black ghettos, but the bipartisan response is an anti-riot bill rather than a serious poverty program. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad. All over the world, like a fever, freedom is spreading in the widest liberation movement in history. I suspect that we are now experiencing the coming to the surface of a triple-pronged sickness that has been lurking within our body politic from its very beginning. That is the sickness of racism, excessive materialism, and militarism. We must also realize that the problems of racial injustice and economic injustice cannot be solved without a radical redistribution of political and economic power. 
we must further recognize that the ghetto is a domestic colony. And we say to our nation tonight, we say to our government, we even say to our FBI, we will not be harassed. We will not make a butchery of our conscience. We will not be intimidated. And we will be heard. Okay, so first of all, note that he calls out the FBI. Like, you ain't low. We know you're out there. You're probably in this audience. We just don't give a fuck. Think about that. Imagine a presidential candidate or a potential presidential candidate in that big crescendo at the end of his speech, giving like a big fuck you to the FBI. That's where King was. And now imagine that same potential presidential candidate than having to go to jail because that's what he had to do the next month. King has to go to Birmingham and he has to do a little bit of jail time for, for charges stemming from the 1963 protests. These charges have been bouncing around in the courts for years and it finally, finally got him. And he has to go settle up with the, you know, the state of Alabama. But the King that returns to Birmingham in 67 is not the King that was there in 63. So now we see King in these blue workman's clothes, this like dark blue denim, like not the, not the suit that we're used to seeing him in. And he's seen with three books, the Bible, John Kenneth Galbraith's new industrial state. It's like an economics book about the, the rise of big corporations power. And the third is the confessions of Nat Turner. That is a revolutionary reading list. Two of the books are about revolutionaries. Jesus is an anti-imperialist revolutionary who gets killed by the state. Nat Turner, of course, leads the most famous armed slave rebellion in the country's history and is killed. And the third, by economist John Kenneth Galbraith, is sort of about the terrain on which King is planning this new fight as he's making this turn toward toward an economic campaign. It looks as though he's trying to, to understand the terrain on which he, he now fights. And now this is what King sounds like when he gets out of jail. <laughs> you can tell he's been reading the confessions of Nat Turner. Listen to this. This is his first public appearance after getting out. America may have many, many days, but they will be full of trouble. There will be no rest. There will be no tranquility in this country until a nation comes to terms with our problems. There will be no rest, no tranquility. That's in November. King is in go mode at this point. Like two weeks later, that's when he makes maybe his most radical move yet, when he announces officially the Poor People's Campaign, this occupation of, of Washington that's going to begin the first week of April. It's about a week after this press conference on December 12th that the meeting that, that we do know about at the Pentagon breaks up in frustration because these guys, you know, these, these top officials, as it's reported, just don't know what to do about what King has planned for April. Because everything about this economic justice campaign that he announces is, is radical. 
I mean, what he's asking for, how he plans to get it, and how deep he plans to roll up to Washington. I mean, King wants to roll into D.C. with the squad, like the squad, the squad. I mean, black folks, white folks, Mexican-Americans, American Indians, Puerto Ricans, Asian-Americans, everybody, all the folks on the bottom. And this, of course, had never been done in American history. It still hasn't. King is calling for the total, direct, and immediate abolition of poverty. Which is difficult since our economy necessitates an an impoverished class. That's, That's the way it works. And so he proposes these radical strategies of of wealth distribution, things like a guaranteed income for all Americans, which is more or less straightforward wealth redistribution. That's the only way it can happen. And he stresses this over and over again in in those last months, those last months of his life leading up to the poverty campaign, this occupation of Washington. He warns that Previous victories, like integration and and the right to vote, really didn't cost anything. It, I mean, it cost the the protesters and and the freedom fighters. It cost their lives at times. But he, he continually repeats that it didn't cost the nation anything. He wants a, quote, restructuring of the architecture of American society. And he says, quote, it is going to cost the nation something. He makes this distinction. He says, the stuff that I was able to achieve before was fairly easily gotten. Now this is going to cost something. This is, this is going to hurt, hurt the powerful. Because his whole, you know, the whole nonviolent you know, protest model oftentimes relies on, on the protester getting hurt. Like that's kind of how it works. And now he's saying, no, now it's going to cost you something. It's going to cost y'all something now. And now he's up the ante on the tactics. So, so he's calling for what he calls traumatic nonviolent action to paralyze DC and other cities. I mean, there's talk of tactics that, that really wouldn't be seen for decades, like creating human barricades to block bridges and tunnels and, and arterial you know, passages into cities. I mean, to, to really suffocate and, and stifle cities, to make them seize, to seize the gears of cities. And now this is how he's talking when he's crisscrossing the country in early 68, recruiting poor folks to go to Washington and shut that shit down. This is what we are faced with. And this is the reality. Now, when we come to Washington in this campaign, we are coming to get our check. When we come to Washington, we're coming to get our check. That ain't the king you learned about in school. Sure shit wasn't the one I learned about. But for all of King's boldness and bravery in the face of that mounting anger in the government and for all his steadfastness you know in this year since Stokely Carmichael had sat him down and warned him to sort of fall back a bit to stay safe King in the last weeks of his life is I don't know he there's a there's a darkness 
there, a, a foreboding. Taylor Branch, the, the preeminent biographer of King, writes of a, quote, gloomy distraction that pushed friends to the brink of alarm. And so about a month before he's killed, Dr. King and Abernathy are on a brief, much-needed getaway for a few days. King is not doing well. He's not getting much sleep. He's, he's running himself ragged. And he's troubled by something. And so this is Abernathy's account of when he and King are down in Mexico. This is three or four weeks before King is killed. And they just tried to get, you know, tried to get away for, for a few days. And Abernathy wakes up in the middle of the night and he sees that King isn't there and he gets worried. But then he remembers the balcony and he goes out there and checks. And there's King. And he'd been there for who knows how long. He, quote, stared alone from a high balcony until nearly dawn and evaded Abernathy's questions about what was wrong, pointing enigmatically to a rock in the harbor, then singing Rock of Ages. Taylor Branch reports that this so worried Abernathy that he could only assume that the FBI must have threatened King directly again. He was so worried that he made inquiries into whether or not the FBI had done something, had done something to, to scare King. Something was wrong with King. But he never heard anything back. And this brings us to April 3rd, the night before King would be killed. King has arrived back in Memphis to lead a march to seek justice for these striking sanitation workers. And ahead of the march, the night before, he's giving a big speech. He doesn't speak until late. The speech is going to last till past 10 that night. And this storm rages outside. It's literally shaking the venue, this huge church. Deadly storms are ripping through the area. Tornadoes and these fierce building-shaking winds are tearing at Memphis. And the storm peaks as King begins his speech. And the speech, delivered just hours before he'd be gunned down, is so eerily prescient. So ominous. King speaks as though he knows he's going to die. It's impossible to listen to this and not get chills. It's the speech of a martyr. The last speech of a man who knows white America will destroy him. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Mr. 
It's 